Chatua Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week we get racing underway with the first round of the JEC Championship and we talk to Tom Robinson. JECpodcast.com Hello, Wayne Scott with you and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well and looking forward to Drive It Day 2021 forthcoming this weekend. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, do it in your Jaguar this weekend. And if you can, take a picture of it and put it up on the website at driveitday.co.uk. Of course, the big National Awareness Day that raises awareness of the historic vehicle community to preserve our freedoms to enjoy yesterday's cars on tomorrow's roads. Very important in a normal year, even more important this year because, of course, Drive It Day is supporting the NSPCC's Childline charity. You can find all the details, as I say, at driveitday.co.uk and they are looking for your photographs of wherever you take your Jaguar, wherever you wear your rally plate. And all the profits from those rally plate sales, of course, go into the NSPCC's Childline. Driveitday.co.uk, make sure you post your pictures up there. We want to see loads of Jaguars on there. So we don't get shown up by the other classic cars. That's the main thing. Also really exciting is the fact that the end is in sight to this lockdown and the pandemic that has curtailed all of our events and our enjoyment. And really excited that tickets are going to go on sale for the Summer Jaguar Festival held at Bista Heritage this year. Just a one-day event on the 4th of July 2021. You can get your day tickets at just £24 a car via jc.org.uk forward slash festival from Tuesday the 27th of April. Tuesday is the day that tickets get announced as going on sale. It's pre-book at the moment, so make sure you get them. Make sure you don't miss out on the opportunity to celebrate with us all of these tremendous anniversaries. 60 years of the iconic E-Type. 60 years of the Mark 10. 70 years since Jaguar's first win at Le Mans. And 25 years since the XK8 was launched. 15 years since the X150 and 20 years since the return of the Jaguar Compact Saloon with the X-Type launch. And so, so much to celebrate. And aren't we desperate to get out and do it? It'd be great to see you there as well. Tickets on sale then for the Summer Jaguar Festival 2021 at Bista Heritage on the 4th of July. And actually, despite the fact that we have had restrictions, we've got loads going on in the club. It's really pissy and lots to be getting involved with. If you fancy getting out on track, and perhaps you've never done this before, we're also running a Novices and Classics at Blyton Park track day. Now, what that means is it's ideally suited for you if you've never done a track day before. It's kind of a novice-friendly, don't get put off by the crazy guys who know what they're doing day. You'll have the track to yourself to learn and to build yourself up gradually. And there'll also be a lot of guidance there on the day to help you through it, to help build your confidence and help build the technique for getting the most out of your Jaguar at Blyton Park. You can get all the details of how you book that and places are going fast. So don't delay if you are interested at jc.org.uk. And it is the Blyton Park Novice Friendly Track Day that takes place on June the 10th. And also, on top of all that fun and excitement, in August, on the 21st of August 2021, we have an exciting opportunity as the JC returns to Harewood, but not the house this time, no, the hill climb instead, and a chance to take your Jaguar up the longest and one of the oldest hill climbs in the UK. More details on that will be coming in this podcast in a future episode very, very soon. But this week, it is all about getting racing underway at last with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship. And to tell us all about how preparations are going, Tom Robinson joins us on this week's episode after Richard West's Hall of Fame next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Hall of Fame, we're talking about an era that is very special to all Jaguar fans. The era of Group C, the era, of course, of TWR as well. And it's just right that we have such a legend inducted into our Hall of Fame in the very week that we begin racing again in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Championship. Set it up for us. Who are we inducting this week? 
Well, we're talking about Johannes Antonius, or better known, Jan Lammers, who was born on the 2nd of June in 1956. Um, uh, we talked a lot in, in recent weeks about some really nice guys. And if it's a Hall of Fame, it's also a really nice guy club too, because there is none nicer than Jan Lammers. And to prove that niceness, if you ever talk to Andy Wallace, who of course partnered him in 1988 when that epic win took place with the TWR Jaguar at Le Mans, Jan Lammers very much took Andy Wallace under his wing at that time, didn't he? He did, and I've talked about this on some of the Zoom chats I've done, the difference between you know two F1 drivers in a team at each other, uh, each other not necessarily at each other's strokes, but super competitive. Unlike in sports car racing, where you do see a lot of relationships grow between drivers, groups of drivers, because as you well know from your experience of sports car racing, it is very, very much a driver team effort. When you're handing over from one driver to another to go and take your session in the night or during the day, there is no room for you know competitiveness or, or tardiness. You are very much reliant on the information that the outcoming driver is giving to the ingoing driver. And Jan did look at a young Andy Wallace, I think, and say to himself, right, there's a lot I can help this guy with. And uh, he deserves great credit for that, certainly. Well, of course, he began, like so many, actually, great legends of sports car racing. They began in Formula One, but never really got to grips with it. And yet he started way back in 1979 in Formula One and just was sort of struck with working for with teams that just did, really didn't have a lot of money, didn't he? He did, but I think if you go even a little bit further, well, if you go a long way back from that, I think when he was 11 or 12 years old, um, he started to go and drive cars on a, on a skid course, which was owned, of course, by Rob Slotermaker. And he was one of the guys who looked at Jan and thought, crikey, I've got a real talent here. Um, and at 16 years old, Jan started racing on his local track there at Zandvoort. He starred in Formula Ford, he starred in Dutch touring cars, and then, of course, he went into Formula 3 in 1977. Um, he didn't get great results. He's, I think if my memory serves me well, he was driving a Hawk at the time. Um, and in his second season, there was a, a, a team called Racing Team Holland, which was run by Alan Docking, who's extremely well-known in British motorsport circles for his exploits in Formula 3. And then, of course, uh, Formula 1 beckoned, and as you rightfully say, a long answer to your question, he got involved in Formula One with Shadow in 1979, and he had a great teammate in Elio De Angelis, who, of course, went on to drive for Lotus and, and for Brabham. So, yeah, it, it's a sad one, isn't it? You often see these incredible talents. They come through, but they just don't get the right break due to budgetary or political reasons. And um, Jan was one of those. He drove for Gunther Schmidt's ATS team. Um, and he went to Long Beach and did a really good job of qualifying. I think he was he was four, the strong fourth. And that proved to be the highlight almost of his time in Formula One. But, you know, then he went to Enzyme and then he moved to Theodore. And they were all teams that had great incentives. And the people who worked for them and funded those teams, you know, were great entrepreneurs and team leaders. But they just didn't give him the break that he needed to become a top running star in Formula One. But it all did come together when he joined up with TWR and entered Group C with that TWR silk-cut livery Jaguar, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did indeed. In fact, he also spent quite a time in cart in the, what was the Championship Auto Racing's American team, the IndyCar Series, had lots of names over the years. But he um, he did 10 starts for four different teams and uh, he raced for people like Forsyth Racing and uh, he also went and did the Indy 500. So this is a guy who, when he came to sports car racing and the Silkcut Jaguar TWR team, he was already very, very well accomplished. And of course, he was, a, he was a great team player, still is. And I mean, I remember being introduced to, I, I knew him before from my Formula One years before I came to TWR. But as soon as I you know, got to the team and he came over to the offices and we told him what we were doing in terms of the relaunch and the, the requirements PR-wise that were going to be thrust upon him, he just said, listen, do whatever you want to do. It's great for the team and it's great for me. Let's get on with it. And with Andy Wallace and Johnny Dumfries, of course, off he went and won the 1988 Le Mans, that incredible shot of him standing on the roof with his arms in the air with all those thousands of British adoring fans crammed around the car. Well, in recognition of that, he got a very special honour that only a few non-UK drivers have ever mm. received, and that was, of course, honorary membership of the BRDC. I think that just sort of proves how he's almost an adopted Englishman, isn't he, basically? 
It's a very good point you pick up, Wayne, and if you want to put that into perspective, two other recipients who you may have heard of who also received that award were Enzo Ferrari and one Manuel Fangio. So he's in very, very exalted company there as an honorary member of the BRDC, certainly. Well, he did go back to Formula One uh, later on, drove a march to some success, but again, never really got the funding and the success that we would have liked to have seen from a legend like that. So in the end... He ended up back with TWR, didn't he? But this he time did in British touring cars. Yeah, he did. He was in the Volvo 850 Estates. Um, interestingly, just going back slightly, you, you, we always talk in the club, don't we? And when you and I have a natter over a pint, um, metaphorically, we talk about those early years. Um, Darren Warren, who is Ollie Warren, my motorcycle rider's father, they live in Oxfordshire. And a few um, months ago, he sent me a photograph and he said, do you recognise this? And I said, I do indeed. It's the cracked windscreen out of the 1988 Le Mans winning car from where Jan stood on the roof. And he said, yeah, it was going to go in the skip. And he said, all those years ago, I rescued it. And it now hangs on his garage wall. So uh, that was an amazing memory seeing that cracked windscreen. But yeah, going back to to, uh, Jan's BTCC days, he um, signed up and drove with Tom and the Volvo uh, 850 estate team in the 1994 season. Very competitive in there yet again. And, uh, you know, at home with the TWR boys, many of whom who'd worked on the previous Jaguar programmes. He succumbed, I guess, to the draw of Le Mans and uh, has been back ever since, really. And I think the 24 hours of Le Mans would never be the same without Jan Lammers somewhere up and down the pit lane. And uh, when you talked about his earlier career, you talked about joining racing team Holland, run by Alan Docking way back when. Mm. It was a name that he revived when he returned to Le Mans with an LMP2 team of his own using Mm. the Dome Judd platform. That's right, racing for Holland. Um, You know, he put a lot into that, a huge amount of effort. Uh, There was some clever sponsorship initiatives of how you could get your name on that car, you know, and be part of the Jan Lammers Dutch effort at Le Mans. And he did. He put all his heart and soul. That's the one thing I always loved about Jan. He was one of those guys, it didn't matter whether... It was a good weekend or a bad weekend. There was always a handshake and a smile, and he always put his heart and soul 100% into his racing. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I talked to you about inducting him into the Hall of Fame, really. But also, of course, he, <laughs> he's also run a, an A1 Grand Prix team for the A1 Grand Prix season, uh, series. And in that, he had one Jos Verstappen, whose son now I think is quite well known at Red Bull Racing. And uh, Bleeker Moland and uh, Van der Zand and others were all in that series, you know, that he was there. So he's a true racer through and through from his very early teens right the way through to the current day. Mm, absolutely. Well, a very, very worthy recipient of entrance to our Hall of Fame here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. And certainly a Jaguar legend. And I know from interviewing him myself at Le Mans, he still talks about the TWR era and that 1988 win with such emotion and still has been the defining Mm. moment of his career. No, I agree totally. And now, sadly, out of that trio, having recently lost Johnny, we just have him and Andy, but a great guy in Jan Lammers and, as you say, very worthy place in our JC Hall fame. Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we are talking to one of our regulars. It is, of course, Tom Robinson, who normally presents the Motorsport Preparation Diary, but it occurred to me, actually, that we haven't had a proper conversation with Tom, Uh, and because we are starting off the new season of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship, a perfect opportunity, I thought, to get to know Tom a little bit better. So, welcome to the podcast as our feature interview at last, Tom Robinson. Hi, Wayne. And I guess things are building in excitement for the weekend ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Saturday, um, we are fir- first round with the Classic Touring Car and the Jag Enthusiast Club at Silverstone. So um, really, really excited to to finally be back out on track. And uh, we've been pretty busy with the with the car, and uh, we're just kind of on the final final throws, ready for Saturday. 
Brilliant. Well, we've got some really exciting racing coming up in the season ahead. Uh, there's been a lot of changes for the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship this year, including some opportunities for you guys at home to watch it online live, which is really exciting. We'll talk about all of that in just a moment. But Tom, let's get a little bit more information on you and how you ended up racing this superb XJR6 that we now see you campaigning in the championship. And tell us a little bit about Swallows. It is the family business. Were you always interested in cars since very young? Racing has always been a huge part of, of what we what we do, or, or more of a hobby, really, Wayne. So um, my dad was heavily involved in, in kart racing, um, so not Jaguar-related. It was actually quite later on that we decided to, to campaign and get involved in the Jaguar racing. Now, we did this first back in, um, I think it was 2014, um, with a customer of ours, a gentleman called Richard Knight who had an XJS and uh, he actually um, introduced us to the series and we prepared a car and, and maintained the car for him in a series, which is where I kind of got the bug to want to go back out racing. So um, in sort of 2015, after we'd been preparing his, I decided um, we had an XJR6 manual come in as a as a spares or repair car, believe it or not. It was in a bit of a sorry state. And um, without kind of doing proper research, I thought it'd be a good idea to, to use that as a, as a kind of test bed or a, a car to, to race in the series. But as I sort of quickly found out, it wasn't the, the best suited car for the application that we were using it for. So it, it's been a bit of a struggle, but um, I'm now on, I think it's season five now, and uh, um, it's actually progressed as being quite a large part of, of what we do here at Swallows. And we offer um, quite a, a large amount of performance packages that are based off of the, the race application. And we move this over to the fast, fast road application. We've been able to develop a lot of packages on track to suit that. So, um, yeah, like I said, the first um, time I was out in the car was was 2016, which is my first season. And uh, to be honest, Wayne, I hadn't even done a track day in the car. It was it was a bit of a last minute set a deadline and go for it and uh, did my odds about two weeks before. Um, and literally first time out at Snetterton, which was, I have to say, pretty daunting. Um, I won't say it's not, but um, one of the massive benefits of the JC as, as a club racing series was how welcoming they all were. So um, although when the lights go out, that soon changes, but off, off, off grid, they are a very welcoming bunch and they helped hugely um, helping on the day, if that makes sense. It can be a little bit daunting, as I was saying. There's a lot that goes on at these race meetings and it, it, they were an absolute huge help. And uh, I actually um, started the same time as Michael Holt. I think you've had him here on the podcast with his X300. He was a newbie at the same time as me and same with Simon Dunfood who campaigns in XJS. So there was uh, two others in the same boat, which, which definitely helped, if that makes sense. We were all trying to do the same thing. And uh, once uh, the first uh, race was under my belt, to be honest with you, um, that's one warning I will say to anyone that's interested. It's very addictive. And here <laughs> yeah. we are now. <laughs> here we are. And you've made quite a name for yourself. I mean, looking back, you must be quite relieved then that that customer's car came in, that XJS that inspired all of this. We were Jaguar specialists, but not in the racing side. Right. Like I said, we hadn't really got involved. We've been Jaguar specialists for for about 35 years within the family. So we've yeah. been campaigning a long time as the, the business in that run. But racing, uh, like I said, was, was completely separate to the business. It never crossed over anywhere. And it was only when we started doing this XJS that all of the knowledge and experience my dad had had with racing carts and the experience he'd had with a lot of brands was, was a hobby to us. It was a huge interest. So when we started moving this over to, to cars, we actually realized that there, was, um, there wasn't very many companies out there um, in the Jag range that, well, ultimately, th these cars are very capable from factory. And with little um, improvements, you can make quite a car. So we decided to, to move that way. And uh, as I said, it's a massive interest to all of us here. So that, that always helps. And uh, we've been able to develop a lot on track in doing that. Well, it's amazing how far you've come from those very early races that you've described there. Your first outing at Snetterton, two weeks after your ARDS test was passed. Um, what was the moment where you started to win stuff and you, I guess, felt that things started to click? 
Yeah, so it, it didn't happen straight away. I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. Um, so um, one of the biggest problems we we had with with the supercharge application um, was firstly that the saloon is quite a heavy car. Um, so we we managed to um, work with the regulations in the championship. Um, the way they are set out is is ultimately they don't want to let a car in that hasn't been run that's going to end up making everything else outdated, if that makes sense. So the supercharged car hadn't been run in the championship before. Um, a couple of people had tried it, but not fully prepared a car to race. So um, there were certain restrictions that we had on the car that we weren't allowed to do. So one of those we had to have in the first season, the original supercharger, we weren't allowed to change that. So those of you that are familiar with the XJR6, it has the Eaton M90 supercharger, which for that size of engine is actually quite a small supercharger. So um, with the car being around 1,600 kilograms, um, which is quite heavy for a race car, um, we really struggled early on to get the weight down. So um, first season, we did okay. I think we managed to, to average kind of um, middle of the pack. Um, at the time, we were in Class D, which we still are now. Um, and that was mainly just the V12 XJS that we were competing against. Um, so um, we had a relatively good season um, and there was also Adam Powderham at the time, which was running in exactly the same car as us that we prepared at the same time. So it was great for me being an unexperienced driver and Adam being an actual experienced driver because he won the, the championship the previous year. So being in identical cars at the time, it was it was great for me to learn because I could see what the car could do. And we were able to base a lot of the development on his input rather than mine being a novice because ultimately I was still finding the limitations of the car, if that makes sense. So um, season two, there was a bit of a change in the regulations and they realised that ultimately they were going to let us have a little bit more, um, a bit of an adaption on the regulations to, to hope we can get our cars a little bit more competitive. And one of those things was that we were able to then change the supercharger, um, but we had to keep with the standard inlet manifold. So that was our restriction, if that makes sense. So um, we then upgraded the supercharger and we, we managed to gain some more power on the car and we managed to get some weight out of that car. And that's really when we started to see really big improvements in, in me as a driver. Um, I was obviously gaining experience. We were able to use the the, the um, experience from Adam as well to, to build quite a competitive handling package. And, and we just gradually improved from there, really, Wayne. And uh, we soon found out um, kind of the Achilles heels of supercharged applications on track. And, and that is that over uh, a long period of time, you generate quite a lot of intake temperatures, which over a race will reduce horsepower quite a lot, if that makes sense. So we would have a lot of um, quick pace early on in the race, sort of the first four or five laps, and then we would unfortunately start to lose power as as the intake temperatures went up, as it would have reduced ignition timing. So this, this is basically because the engine's sucking in now hot air, and what it really needs is colder air so that it atomizes the petrol. Absolutely, yeah. So we would it would literally like so you you would turn a switch off almost. So people would even from the sidelines notably see the difference in the power. So. We soon found that really that was our kind of limiting factor. And and when you start running these at sort of high RPMs that we are and, and the intake temperatures like they were, you then have kind of other failure points, Wayne. So because we were running on warmer than we should, we were getting coolant hose fail and all sorts of other problems. So we started to get into the realms of kind of reliability issues. So we have the, the lap times and a quick pace early on, but we were getting these other issues. So basically each year we've kind of been able to iron out these these problems and it was about um in year three and year four where we really started to be knocking on the doors at the front end of the grid with the xjs's um they're the most competitive car currently in our series believe it or not the straight six seems to be the the best all-rounder because the weight on those xjs's is quite impressive i think they're down to around 1250 kilograms um, and some of those straight six naturally aspirated applications, they're, they're seeing over 350 horsepower from those now. Um, so as you can imagine, it is quite a competitive car. It's very light on um, tyre wear, whereas we were heavier on tyre wear. So it was just getting that balance. Power isn't always everything on the race circuit. Mm. When you do have those reliability issues and as you're developing a car, whilst you're also learning yourself the discipline of racing, it can be difficult to not be distracted by the mechanicals going on around you. How were you able to sort of separate your worries about the reliability in those early days from just focusing on the job at hand as a driver and how you needed to improve and, and take each circuit as it came? 
Yeah, it was it was it was really frustrating actually from from a driver's perspective because early on um, we would we would really have like a quite competitive pace and it, it was definitely frustrating. I mean, I sort of learned quite quickly to to be able to manage the car better. Um, as a novice driver, kind of your immediate reaction is to go as hard as you can straight away, if that makes sense, and hope you can um, can keep at that. But I soon found that really we needed to to pace the car and to keep a consistent lap time rather than just putting in a couple of really quick laps. So, um, yeah, from a driver's perspective, it was, it was quite frustrating and it was, it was quite hard early on to know what I needed to, to change with regards to car setup. Um, because, um, obviously I was only just getting to know the actual limitation of the car, let alone where I need to go with kind of your damper settings and your geometry. But, as I was saying, that was a massive help having Adam on board at the time that was able to, to give some of that feedback. But um, we gradually worked through each issue. And uh, obviously, um, I've got a fair amount of me mechanical experience, which definitely helped in understanding what was going on with the car and what I could do as a driver to try and help with that. When you look back at those early rounds, your first round, maybe at Snetterton, and you look at your own driver's development since then, what are the main techniques and skills that you've picked up along the way what are the differences that you see in yourself when you look back on those early races um i think the biggest um thing that i've i've now definitely got which i didn't have is being more relaxed in the car i think your your kind of immediate reaction is it, it's quite nerve-wracking i mean I, I still get nervous nervous today i think everyone that races does especially when you're, you're on the grid or you're waiting to go out on track once once the lights are out you, you kind of you're in your zone if that makes sense. you don't really consider anything other than what you're doing but I think that's the, the biggest thing that I now find now is when I'm actually in the car, I'm a lot more relaxed, which then smooths the drive of the car. And essentially, the smoother you can be in transition at speed, the, the more time you find on the, on the lap, the lap timer. It's as, it's as simple as that. Um, and that, that's quite hard to get when, you, when you're a new driver. You can end up getting quite erratic easily, and that actually unsettles the car. So I think that's the biggest thing that I see now as a driver. I would quite happily get in any car now with, with the, the track time I've had and, and feel I could get to the limit of that car fairly quickly in, in just being smooth and progressive, really. Interesting. That's something that you're able to then apply more and more as the as the season goes on. And actually, I suppose what happens then is you start to think less about what you're doing as a driver and how you've got to learn and, and trying to soak up all the information. And then concentrating more on the car and getting into the details of how you can improve the car for each circuit. Yeah, that's absolutely it. Now, it becomes as if it's it's almost second nature. You can feel the limitations of the tyre, you can feel the grip levels. And there's always times where it'll catch you out here and there as a, as a race goes on, if that makes sense. Because as a race does go on, the, the conditions do change slightly. The tyres get hotter, so you start to have less grip. Early on in the race, you have a cold tyre. So you learn to be able to manage that and get a really good feel. And most of that comes through kind of the, the base of the car, through the seat, if you see what I mean. You can feel your steering input and your braking input and how that affects the handling of the car. And as I've been talking about on some of the podcasts, like we we get a lot of data from these cars as well now with, with all these systems. And then you can actually see where you as a driver fits in with that, which is quite interesting. We do spend a lot of time researching that, um, which helps us ultimately find, find the lap times. I can imagine that a lot of racers who are keen to start off in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Championship would look at your car and think, there's no chance I can ever get to those levels. There's no chance I can keep up with that beast. And hearing you talk about the different developments and the problems that you've had along the way is really interesting because it gives people an idea of the long amount of time you've had to work on that car to get it to that stage. So for those that are starting out in racing that want to get involved in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Championship, Let's give them some advice on, firstly, what car to look for and how to not get too intimidated or distracted by some of the more experienced drivers out on track, because it could be enough to put you off, couldn't it, early on? So if you had someone come to you early doors and say, I want to get racing, how do I do it? How do you find them the right car? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point, Wayne. And it's something that um, I think a lot of people feel that sometimes racing's out out of out of your reach. But within the the club and the JEC series, it's definitely not. I mean, um, 
I would suggest we, I didn't go the best route about it with regards to, I picked a car that was that not been raced and not been developed, which is why we have had to do what we've do to get to where we are, if that makes sense. So class A is a very competitive class and a, and a point to mention, which I haven't said is you can win the championship from any class. So um, there's four classes, A, B, C, and D. So wherever you are on the grid, I mean, we could be at the front, um, a class A car could be middle of the pack and you still have a shot of winning a championship overall, which is, I think is, is a really big um, benefit to, to the series um, because it rules out budgets, Wayne, if that makes sense. So a class A car um, has a lot more restrictions on what we are allowed to do to my car. So um, you, you have to use most of the Jaguar components. So for example, you, you have to use the standard braking systems, but you can upgrade materials. Um, you have to have MSA approved roll cages, etc. but there's only a few power modifications. So, Anyone that's looking to come into the series as a novice, that would be where I'd recommend to, to start from is either a class A or class B car. Um, and I would also look at, there's quite a few cars that are actually already being prepared by people and that have been raced previously. So that's a, a quite a good way of getting into series is, is to buy a car that's been pre-done. Um, most of you um, probably can remember, I think you had Mike Seaborn on the podcast. Um, he bought an XJ40 um, car. And I think I think he paid around three and a half thousand for that ready to race. And he had no initial thoughts of racing a Jag. He just couldn't believe how much value that was. So um, that's one good point is to look for cars that are ready to go. Um, now, most of the cars that have been the most heavily developed within our series is the XJS, as I said earlier. Um, there's quite a few other specialists like us that can sell you all the components off the shelf ready for that. Um, the downside with is the XJS at the moment is they are starting to creep up in, va in value, so they're harder to get to be able to race them for price-wise. Um, but you've got the XK8, um, that's now allowed to be raced in a series. Um, we can offer all the components needed to build one of those to class A, class B, class C, or D standard, whatever your preference is. Um, and um, there's other models like the S-Type. Um, we're currently building a class A car for someone at the moment. That's a very, very reasonably priced car that you can buy. Um, same again, you can get all the safety devices, roll cages, and everything off the shelf for that. So really, it's just using a car that someone has already developed. And there's a huge amount of experience within um the club the race and and people will happily give you advice um to plan and, and build a car before you do go out there obviously jaguars mainly as road cars are all automatic boxes so how many of those cars out on track that you see within the championship are still running those auto boxes and how many have had to do expensive manual conversions then so um i believe it or not i think most of the cars up to date are on a manual gearbox um so that's a really good point, Wayne. I'm glad you've mentioned that because that that is often reflected in when you are buying a car. It is always best to go with a manual gearbox. Um, there is options on the S-Type from factory as a manual and obviously the XJS. So um, I don't believe there is any automatic cars out there on the grid at the moment, but there used to be. And it is more well within the regulations to use the automatic gearbox. Interesting. So something to look for then when looking into buying a race car, try and get one that's already been converted because, well, basically it'll make your life a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can get all the components separately. Um, we do kits for the V8 and I believe the V6 is fairly straightforward as well. So, And also the the AJ16 engine. Um, most of us use the, the Katrag 290 gearbox, which are, are fairly readily available and, and we uh, and other companies as well can do clutch kits for those off the shelf. So that's the purchase of your race car out the way. What about the ongoing costs throughout a season? Because it's all well and good having this race car and then buying buying all the expensive gear and your helmets and all that kind of stuff but then racing itself can be quite costly things like tires entry fees give us an idea of what the average race meeting costs yeah so that that ultimately depends on, on what class you're running in so with um with the class a cars they and class b cars they need a lot less maintenance than something like that if, like mine if that makes sense so um the a race entry for the weekend depending on what circuit you are it does vary ever so slightly is is around the sort of 370 to 400 pound mark depending on where you are some of the bigger circuits are are more on the pricey side like silverstone something like that um and then 
tyres. Um, the championship is sponsored by Toyo Tyres. Um, we're all running on the R Triple Eight R, so we're all on a level playing field for that. And they subsidise the cost of the tyres, so you do get a really good discount on that. So I believe that the tyres are around um, hundred pounds per tyre. So you've got around four hundred pounds there on your tyres, and they do last a surprisingly long time, Wayne. They're not like a, a slick that only lasts a race. You will get probably a good part of the season. Um, maybe four or five rounds out of a set of tyres. Um, obviously, when you go to the more modified stuff, they are a little bit more aggressive on tyres. So I normally use around four or five sets a year. So it does add up on that front um, with the higher powered cars. But um, now other sort of costs to consider, um, you've obviously got fuel um, and transport getting to the circuit. Um, one of the things that um, you, you might need to consider is whether you're going to drive the car to the circuit or whether you're going to have to get the vehicle trailered there. That's a cost that you need to consider. And you, you've also got fuel um, costs to get there and back and also over the weekend. So it's, it does all add up. But like I said, it depends at what level you're running to, to do that. I think as well, the commitment of time is something that often surprises people when they arrive in the sport because to yeah. be competitive, it's not actually necessarily about winning all the time. It's actually mainly just turning up. And the schedule throughout the year, although there's not a race on every single weekend, there are a lot of weekends you have to give a side to it, isn't there? Yeah, that's that's a really valid point, um, Wayne, is is time it is is it's a very big commitment. I mean, um, as I've been talking about in the podcast, I, I spend a, a huge amount of hours preparing preparing the car. Um, and although you, you might only be racing for one day, that is probably a good two or three, maybe even four weekends worth of preparation to get ready for event. Um, like I said, it does depend on on what standard the car's built to ultimately. But um, if it is a Class A car, they take a lot less maintenance than a, a more modified car, as I said. But um, there is a huge amount of time involved. You've obviously got to get to the circuit. Sometimes that can be a fair drive. And uh, um, if we're up at Snetterton, something like that, that's a good sort of four or five hour run for us. So we'll often go up the night before and stay over. So all of those do need to be taken into consideration. Well, it's a great sport, though, and I know that everyone's great friends with each other up and down the paddock. It is a huge family within the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship. And although the racing gets very serious when the lights change and the race is on, it is one of the, should I say, most polite race series I think I've ever seen in that everyone is very respectful of everybody else's car there's very little contact and if there is it's purely by accident and on the whole most cars come off the racetrack at the end of the weekend unscathed don't they yeah you're absolutely right and if there is any any contact um you you can guarantee it that four or five of the the other competitors will be in the paddock giving them a hand to try and turn it around and get it back on track and that's one thing that going around most of the circuits in the UK with the series is you very rarely see that in any other championship or any other race is, is other competitors helping each other try to get that car turned around. So you've got someone to race against. It's, it's a really unique series and it's a massive plus, especially as you're coming in as a novice. Um, we've got Matthew that's, that's coming out with us this year and it's his first year. And um, I think he's going to be surprised at how welcoming the, the rest of the drivers are. Obviously, when the light goes out, um, that's a bit of a different story. But in the paddock, um, one of the things um, we often do, which we haven't been able to do since COVID, is uh, um, if we're there for a race weekend on, on the, the Friday or Saturday night, we'll quite often book the local um, takeaway or curry house and we'll all go out for a big meal. And uh, it is quite a good social as well as a race event, really. Um, as you mentioned, there are... Um, sort of bogey times and, and ways that every anyone from any class within the championship can win. But I guess the biggest advice to someone starting out is don't try and win. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah, this is it. And everyone has to start somewhere. And just because, like you say, you're, you're middle of the pack doesn't necessarily mean that you haven't got a shot at winning the championship from any class. It, I mean, it, it's happened multiple times. I think... Um, 2018 um, I think it was it might be 2019 Chris Boone um, won the championship overall in an XK8 from Class B 
And ultimately, um, he didn't have any overall race wins. He just had absolute bulletproof reliability and consistency. And that that pays off, um, often more than the quickest lap time, if that makes sense. We've spoken to many of the guys up and down the grid on this podcast, and hopefully we'll speak to even more of them as the 2021 season unfolds. And it will be a season with a lot of changes. Now, just talk us through where you were last year to where you are with the championship this year because the major change is that you've got a grid for yourself now a few people might be confused at what i'm talking about there but basically last year you were racing with other different championships but all on the same race circuit weren't you yeah that that's it and and unfortunately the 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 JC Club as a, as a whole had a bit of a dip in numbers um, and um, we we raced alongside with the Classic Sports Car Club and um, is what happened as last year um, is due to the reduced grid numbers, the CSC had a huge amount of other cars that, that were in a similar position. So we, we merged grid for the first time. Previous to that, we were always a, a Jaguar only race. And we actually merged with the Open Series. Um, so we had a mix of cars on the grid, which um, had its benefits um, and also a couple of downsides. One of the things that obviously most of those cars in the Open Series were, were built to a, a completely different set of regulations to what we're, we're built to. So they're running on different tyres. So it was what we found it was there was kind of a massive speed differential between certain cars out on the grid. So um, it was it was nice to put the Jags up against some different cars to see how we compare. Um, but the great news is this season we're back to being a, a Jag only grid, which is which is absolutely great. I think Wayne, it's it's nice to see Jags only out on the grid, and you're all on a level playing field if that makes sense. And uh, we've moved over with the, with the classic touring car, which I think is going to be absolutely great. Well, the other great thing about the BARC is that they have some really great ways that you can follow the racing online, and they're very good at sharing it through the usual media portals. Uh, YouTube is streaming the race live. Basically, they are dividing up the streams into sections of the race weekend. So Saturday starts at 10 to 9 in the morning with a qualifying show, and uh, all of the links to these will be included on the description part of the podcast page, and also the Jaguar enthusiast club's friday spotlight e-newsletter so you can pick it up from one of the two of those and also of course via the news pages at jc.org.uk the race show starts from quarter to midday on saturday and then on sunday we have round two with the qualifying at 10 to 9 and again the full race round two on sunday at just gone 10 o'clock they're all being streamed via youtube they're also being streamed via the barc hq facebook page so if you're a social media user you can use facebook.com forward slash barc hq and you can find all of the streams on there as well and as i say we'll give you a link to those within friday spotlight and in the description part of the podcast page at jcpodcast.com as well so saturday schedule qualifying at 10 in the morning talk us through how that race day will unfold for you tom you'll no doubt get there friday night i'm guessing sort of after work and get yourself settled in ready for saturday morning early yeah, that, that's pretty much the plan. We've um, we actually had a um, a bit of a test session on Monday at Castle Coombe with the car, um, which was a bit of a last minute um, thing we added to the to Canada. So we've been able to to do all the final checks, get the car all prepared and ready. Matthew's also got his car all ready and he's going to see us there. So um, we'll be ready for qualifying. I think qualifying's at ten twenty five. Um, and then we've got the, uh, I think the first race is at 1pm. So we've got a little bit of time between qualifying and the race to make sure that there's no issues um, and to make a couple of setup changes if needed. And Silverstone, an amazing circuit to be racing at, full of history. And it's a fast circuit to start the season with as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely great. And it's quite rare that you get the opportunity um, to, to race at Silverstone. As exactly as you said, it's, it's pretty iconic. It's extremely fast. There's a huge amount of wide runoff areas as well. So you can really, really find the limitation of the car. So I'm really excited to see what um, Silverstone brings. And uh, yeah, I just can't wait, to be honest. And obviously you are hugely competitive as everyone is. You'll be eyeing up other drivers on the grid and trying to work out who the hot competition is this year. Who is the hot competition within the JC <laughs> Race Championship and who's going to be troubling you, Tom? So to be fair, we have quite a lot of um, trouble with two main competitors, which is uh, Mr. James Ram and, and Colin Philpot. Both of those are, are in the straight six XJS and uh, 
Um, I'm sure both of them have been, although they say they won't be, have been very busy boys over the winter. Um, I know both of those are on the entry list for Silverstone. So they're my two biggest uh, competitors. And hopefully we can uh, get the saloon out in front of them and keep them behind. <laughs> That's the plan anyway. What is the strategy for the race then? Would it be straight off the line and, and hit it hard or do you sit back or do you even yeah. have a strategy or do you just see how it plays out? To, to be honest with you, Wayne, with it being a 15-minute race, um, the way that it's set up this year, ultimately we will try to qualify in the best position possible and, and just go from there, really. There's no particular plan. It's, it's just with all the improvements we've done to the car over the winter, we've been able to, to get longevity with the lap times now and we can keep it fairly consistent. So I'm hoping to get a, a couple of uh, quick laps set in qualifying and that will hopefully be all I need to do to qualify in a decent, decent position. And then I'm hoping this year we can we can keep the lap times consistent in the race and keep a consistent pace all the way through. That's the target. What have been the preparations for Silverstone this weekend? What's the latest update to the diary, Tom? Yeah, so we had a, a test day um, from the last podcast and we found that where we'd taken a, a fair amount of weight from the car, um, I don't know if you can remember, I was talking about the car that was skipping slightly. So um, we've sort of gone back to the drawing board with that and we've actually found a, a couple of issues on the car, one of which um, had a, a gearbox leak, um, which was actually coming from the, the, the gearbox output seal. So we've um, put a new seal in there. Um, changed all the oil on that and that has now rectified that so that was I'm glad we caught that before that was a problem um, the suspension now because we've taken a fair bit of weight out of the car we, we found that we're sort of getting towards the, the dampers essentially being too stiff on the rear of the car so um, we've taken the dampers off and we've sent them to uh, we use a company called Quantum Racing and we've had the dampers revalve so to change those so I had a, um, another track day on Monday at Castle Coombe and uh, we had a little bit of a patchy start to the day, um, weirdly. With the, the difference in the rear dampers, it was it was very different to how the car handled previously. So I'm glad we managed to get a last minute track day because I actually had to spend a huge amount of time setting up the car and, and changing quite a few settings. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. And uh, we also had, a um, unfortunately, a, a rear... Um, wishbone mounting fail um, which was really lucky it happened on the track day rather than waiting till Silverstone so we've had to replace the rear lower wishbone bushes on the car which was uh, just one of those really um, so we've replaced that um, and then we've just changed all the fluids on the car really so just basic maintenance like we normally talk about so uh, change the engine oil gearbox oil once we did that seal uh, differential oil change and, and a wheel alignment already and then we've uh, um, pop some brand new tyres on there that we scrubbed at the previous test day already. So hopefully um, Saturday morning we'll roll it out the trailer and away we go. You must be really excited after the pandemic took away so many rounds last year. Yeah, it's, it was very frustrating. And it's when you're building these cars, um, as you know, Wayne, I'm sure you've done this with projects. If there's no kind of deadline to work to, it very quickly goes to the back of the queue. And uh, when these kind of deadlines keep moving, it's it's really frustrating and it's it's hard to, to plan. Everyone's trying to, to do the same. So a lot of the companies that are involved in motorsport are very busy over the winter periods reproducing stuff. So it's hard to get everything in line. So, yeah, I'm glad that we've got the calendar set. Um, it was only a month later than we originally anticipated and we're still getting a full calendar, which is oh, it's just absolutely great news. And uh, it'll be good when we can finally get some spectators to come along as well. Absolutely. And uh, talk us through the rest of the team that you have around you, because I know you bring some lads with you and they help you out with the racing, don't they? Yeah, so um, as I was saying earlier, the, the racing side is, is like a hobby to us, really. Um, we absolutely love it. We've got some really good guys here. We've got um, we've got um, quite a few technicians that are based more on the service side. Um, and we've got a, a separate technician, um, Dan, um, who works with us. Um, he actually was on one of the technical seminars with us. He came on board. Um, it's come up to a year now, I believe. And uh, he's got quite a lot of experience um, with, with, believe it or not, with Renault in a race series. So he's come across to us and he's kind of taken to it like a duck to water really. And it's uh, pretty much all he does now. So he comes with us to all the race events and looks over all the data and, uh, and keeps the cars absolutely tip top. Like I said, we're going to be running two cars this weekend. So he'll be a busy boy. And it's, it's great for me as a driver to be able to rely on him to know that everything, I don't have to triple check everything. It's all ready to go. If that makes sense. And I can concentrate on the driving. 
Well, hopefully he can make sure that you're well equipped with microphones in the car and uh, reminds you to record some segments for us because we'd love to hear how you get on on the next podcast here with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. So uh, we will resume the normal service of Tom Robinson's Motorsport Preparation Diary next week with how exactly you got on, Tom, and do take us down the paddock with you and uh, give us some behind-the-scenes information on how that uh, weekend pans out. Of course, all of those links to how you can watch the action unfold live on YouTube and on Facebook will be in the Friday Spotlight email and in the description part of this podcast episode at jcpodcast.co.uk. And you mentioned technical seminars there. We mustn't let you go without saying, well, congratulations and welcome to the team because I think it's a job you've been doing for some time already, actually. You are now officially one of the technical team the technical advisors for the club aren't you yeah absolutely you know, it's, it's something i'm um, really privileged uh, to do it's uh, we have been offering some technical advice before but yeah now it is is official and um we've been doing some um some zoom um technical seminars which i have to say Wayne, i'm surprised at the, the amount of interest we've had in doing that so um we've got a couple more lined up and i think the plan is moving forward that we're going to be doing uh, one a month on varying topics i think the the next one is the 28th, um, and that's actually going to be talking about um, performance braking systems. And we've got um, one of the guys from Tarox um, who's going to be talking a little bit about the involvement he has with some of the packages we've developed for race and road use. Brilliant. We look forward to that. And, of course, readers of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine, the magazine that's included in your membership of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, our monthly fantastic publication have to say uh, featured the Maguire's S-Type which you Tom have built what an amazing project what an amazing car yeah it was it's absolutely um, brilliant it was um, it was one of those kind of projects that um, from a, from our perspective it was just absolutely great to be involved with Maguire's and, and Dale's vision for that car um, it was pretty unique and i don't think anything else has been done that's, that's similar to that so yeah it was absolutely great to get involved involved in that project and we worked with um some really really great brands to build some of the products for that you can read more details on that in the jaguar enthusiast club magazine the april issue and basically it's the S-Type built by Meguiar's, uh, built with Tom over at Swallows Independent Jaguar. And let's just say it's very, very highly modified. It's well equipped for track day fun. And it's the sort of car you just had to photograph against an industrial background. It's not an S-Type that you would take down the bowling green, is it? <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely not. It's um, it's actually a bit of a, a, a sort of a track weapon, really. It was a Dale's vision was to to kind of um, do a modern take on an original period Mark One race car, which I think so you nailed that one with yes. with the look of the car, and yeah. uh, it's actually a very capable, subtle but very capable car. Well, read more about it in the magazine, and we'll look forward to hearing more from you, Tom, and hearing how Silverstone goes this weekend as the first round of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Championship takes place and racing begins for the 2021 season, a season that hopefully won't get interrupted like 2020s did with pandemic stuff and a season that will see the best Jaguars out with the best people driving them having fun. We'll hear more about it from Tom on next week's podcast. So until then, Tom Robinson, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks, mate. It's been great. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. 